Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, episode 13. Today's topic, teaching. Welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three friends get together at the hotel bar as if they had just finished a day at a philosophy conference, learning all sorts of new things and excited to share in conversation with each other. I'm Shannon Musset, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. Hey, I'm Lee Johnson. Hey, I'm Ammon Allred. Fantastic. Before we get started today, I want to hear what paper you came from and what drink you'd like to order. Ammon, how about you? So I'm going to admit something that I, during this pandemic, have become familiar with a new drink, and I wonder if this bar is high enough quality to serve it. <laughs> it's called White Claw, <laughs> oh God. which I had literally never had before the pandemic, but I'm now addicted to. So you I really like this here. Like... You want a Zima with that? A Zima sidecar? And some you Bitcoin? Know, if they have it. <laughs> it's refreshing. Ah. So the session I just got out of, it went a lot over. In fact, it was called, This is the Session That Doesn't End. <laughs> Zeno and JL Austin team up to ruin your afternoon. <laughs> did it even start, though? <laughs> that it did. <laughs> We, we never made it to the halfway point. I got him saying, and I'm going to come back to this, and I'm going to come back to this. And Let me begin know, again. Still in there doing that. <laughs> Wait, that was you, our Lee? graduate education, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I am going to have my usual a Fireball and Diet Coke, and I just got out of a session that was titled, I Would Not Lie About Being a Robot, colon, the title of this paper is false. Ooh. <laughs> I think that's the second on. infinite loop that now we're on. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, I think I'm just going to have white wine straight. Nice. That's right. Oh, no spritz. That's right. No spritz. I'm not going to cut it with anything because I just got out of a session. I know you are, but what am I? Uncovering the true Socratic method. <laughs> <laughs> Also known as your mama. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So actually, the reason I went to this made up paper is because today we're going to be talking about teaching and our successes and our failures and just in general, our experience as teachers and what we see happening in the future as we look towards the next few years and maybe the next couple of decades in our careers, hopefully that we'll still be doing this job. Really, the reason why I wanted to talk about teaching is actually I have a lot of reasons. If I haven't already made this clear in our podcast, I'm sure this will not be the first or last time I will say it. But Socrates is actually my hero. And I know that's isn't that cute? But You're such an asshole, but <laughs> I know, but that's part of why. And <laughs> one of the reasons is because I still to this day am completely perplexed by this idea of him disavowing being a teacher. So in the apology, he's accused of corrupting the youth, and I want to ask if that's what we're doing. And mm. right, and teaching false things, being impious and corrupting the youth. And in his defense, in his apology, he says, I never got money. I was never paid for this. And I never claimed to be a teacher. And since I don't know anything, how can I actually teach anything? And I just think that paradox of teaching right at the ground level of what we're doing as philosophy professors really informs how I approach the whole discipline to this day. 
I'm excited we're doing this. I go through, I've been teaching for 20 years now, I think, which is wild to think about, but, and I've probably gone through 25 identity crises as a teacher. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I don't know if I buy Socrates' refrain that he didn't think of himself as a teacher, but I do think that teaching is not an uncomplicated activity. In the university, all of us have to do this thing where we separate out, it's sometimes called the tripod of our professional service. We have our research, our teaching, and our service. And I think that the idea is that our true expertise always is in the thing that we do our research in, and the other two are somehow uncomplicated, when in fact the service we're, we're incompetent to do for the most part. Um, and Says the administrator. <laughs> I actually really like teaching. Yeah, I actually stuff, think you're right? probably like, good at it too. <laughs> but, uh, but then the teaching is, is presumed to just flow naturally from research. I think that people have gotten more savvy to the fact that it doesn't last 20 years, but revising it. I, I was never trained to be a teacher. And I still have a lot of serious questions about how I teach. But I think that's good. I think that's the point, right? That you're constantly self-interrogating and revising your approaches. We have to with the changing landscape of teaching. But I do wish that there had been more effort when we were in graduate school, and even now for students who are in graduate school, more effort directed at actually teaching people how to teach. I know that for most of us, I imagine it was the same way. You just asked your friends, you tried to imitate some of your best teachers, you borrowed other people or stole from other people's syllabi until you figured out how to do it yourself. But it really is exactly what Eamon said. We assume that if you're an expert in something that you can teach it, and that is just not true. Like teaching is a whole different skill set. Yeah. It's a whole different toolkit, I might even say. <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I think you have to now. I don't know. I do think that we had more training in our graduate program than a lot of people do. A lot of people just walk right in in their very first semester. They're handed a class to teach. And that didn't happen with any of us. We TA'd. We had to build up and then we would get a class. And then by the end, we had multiple classes. But there was some structure to our education. I had a lot of friends across the country who they were teaching multiple classes their very first semesters of graduate school. I love hmm. our teachers in graduate school. That said, <laughs> to say that my experience TAing was an experience <laughs> in mentorship from a, from an expert teacher. Yeah, I was going to say this. I think you're thing. just supposed to absorb <laughs> it, right? You're yeah, just I, to think absorb that, it. I think that when you TA, you're not really assisting teaching. You're grading. That's what you're doing. You do need to learn how to do that as well. I disagree, Shannon. I don't think that we got a lot of helpful information about how to be good teachers. Maybe I was the last of the old guard where they actually did that because I really was taught how to do some of these basic things. But it doesn't mm. really get to, I think, the real things like you were talking about. the How do you construct a syllabus? How do you construct assignments? How do you have a rubric for evaluation? There was definitely no instruction on here's what it means to evaluate student work. It was just, that seems good. That doesn't seem that good. Check your grammar. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> not a whole lot more than that. <laughs> So will you permit me just one more philosophical question that I just wanted to ask, and it's still going to come from Plato because I've been on a real Plato kick lately. But I want to just ask you, what do you think we're doing when we're teaching? 
So if Socrates says, I'm not a teacher because I don't know anything, so therefore I'm not teaching. And since I'm not paid, I'm not teaching. But elsewhere in Plato, he talks quite a bit about this idea of what it means to be a teacher, or at least to engage in a kind of pedagogical conversation with others. I'm thinking in Teaching to Transgress, Bell Hook says that we have to teach in a manner that respects and cares for the souls of our students. And Plato says the same thing. In the Protagoras, he's got Socrates asking this young feller, what exactly are you doing if you go to Protagoras? You're basically giving your soul to someone and that's dangerous. You don't know what they're gonna do to it. If somebody gives you bad food, it's really clear because you get sick and you know not to buy food from them anymore. But if somebody does something to your soul, if somebody educates you in a certain way, you can't really see the effects of that. It happens, it's invisible. And in the Phaedrus, he makes it very clear that you must, this is a quote, you must understand the nature of the soul. You must determine which kind of speech is appropriate to which kind of soul. And what exactly are we doing when we're teaching? Because you have to know something about the people that you are engaging to be able to do it effectively. But I just wanted to hear what you all think you're doing when you're teaching. Yeah, we're getting to all my various identity crises as a teacher right now. Let's do I vacillate it. on this question so much. We're encouraged a lot of times, and I actually think this is the wrong approach, but it's a tempting wrong approach. We're encouraged so much to think about our relationship to students contractually. And mm. I'm contracted to teach a certain subject matter that has a certain place in the university. And there are times when I think to myself that to think of myself as doing anything more than that would be overly presumptuous. However, I don't think that the people who are setting these curricular matters are necessarily very wise. And a lot of the time, I am much more inclined to regard it as a spiritual or existential vocation. And in those cases, I, I, I want to see myself as impacting my students, but those are very different goals. And they get into questions about what democracy is. They get into questions about what my relationship to my students is, what my relationship to my students should be, what my relationship to my own wisdom is. And I, I, I feel so unsettled about so many of those things. To me, I think when I'm teaching, I am contesting, I'm, I'm trying to work through my own contestation of what it means to be a teacher a lot of the time. And I don't mean that in some pretentious way. Questions you're asking are really hard to answer, and I don't think I have good answers to them. But I, I, I just want to say that when I say that somebody like Socrates is my hero, and I really groove on this platonic way of describing what teaching is, I think that's it. I think there's a kind of contestation and a constant questioning if you're going to be a good teacher. <clears throat> I think the worst teachers are the ones who know exactly what they're doing and how to do it. And there's nobody going to tell them any other way because they figured it out. And that seems to me to be the sort of that's teaching in bad faith. What is it that I'm doing? What does it mean to be a teacher? Which I said just a moment ago is a constantly shifting terrain. Yeah, I think that if I had to briefly describe what I think I'm doing when I'm teaching is that I think that I'm trying to bring students into the long historical 
conversation of human ideas. And so in one sense, that means that I am giving them information that they don't know. I'm explaining the terms, I'm explaining the debates, I'm explaining the sort of major players in the conversation. But I hope also what I'm doing is I'm helping them to find their own voice, to be producers of knowledge and not just recipients of information. And so that means also helping them cultivate the kind of skills that allow them to both enter into a conversation and be a productive member of a conversation, but also to be really critical about other people in the conversation, their own position in the conversation, and the aims or the goals of any parts of those conversations. I I love that answer. I hope that's what I do and what I try to do also. I do wonder, though, teaching information, there's a very clear mechanism for. Now, as we know, it doesn't necessarily work very well. So we all know that lectures are, or maybe we don't all know, but the evidence seems pretty clear at this point that lectures are not very effective ways to teach. Bad lectures aren't. Whenever we're doing big studies, it's always good that we don't do the qualitative analysis. So it might be that good lectures are. The claims are are pretty widespread that students don't retain very much information from lectures, etc. I actually agree with you, Shannon. I think that maybe we are overly suspicious of lectures too. But it, it seems like there's a model for how to teach information and how to teach certain kinds of skills. And one of the things that I've always struggled with about being a philosophy teacher, because I think so much of it is that activity of criticism, whether you, t- you take the Socratic model of oh, students have to sort of awaken in themselves, and so we're trying to cultivate this, or uh, there's a text by Brancier, the ignorant schoolmaster, where he imagines rather than the Socratic moving from ignorance, this idea that everyone has equal intelligence and the job of the teacher is to have an iron will to force people to use their intelligences. <laughs> in either case, there's a sense that it's, you can't effectively teach somebody criticism. And I don't know if that's right or not, but that is part of the challenge, the kind of goals that you're describing, Lee, is I wonder if if we think that that is our goal, like how do we understand ourselves to be doing that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I also think you can't effectively teach curiosity. I hope that by bringing students into these conversations and trying to present these conversations and, and actually the informational content of these conversations in a way that's interesting enough to inspire them to be curious, to ask questions, to raise objections or critiques. I'm not sure that's going to work on everyone because I don't think everyone is curious. I don't think everyone wants to be in these conversations or cares to be in these conversations. And I'm not 100% committed to this position, but I don't necessarily think that everyone ought to be either. I do think that there are different kinds of intelligences and the kinds of intelligences that want to take up the long history of human ideas is not for everyone. All right. So I don't know. I'm not buying a a lot of this. So first of all, I think that it is possible (laughs) to get even the most uninterested person, at least moderately, or a modicum of interest in any subject that you're teaching in a class. And Lee, honestly, I've seen you do it. So I know you are capable of getting pretty much every single student sitting in a classroom curious about what it is you're talking about. And part of that is it's a performance. There's a certain way of performing questioning and passion and curiosity. And I think that there is a way that even if somebody's still going to be sitting in the back on their phone the entire time, there will be moments where they'll be like, "Hmm? what? I think everybody is not only capable, but also interested in the history of the ideas that we talk about. We just got to find the right way in. I hear what you're saying. And I do agree that there is a way to make the material interesting 
for almost everyone. And I've seen you both teach and lecture as well. And we're all very good at the very entertaining dog and pony show that is uh, university teaching. Just to get back to Ammon's point about cultivating skills, I think presenting an argument or information or the history of ideas in a way that makes people look away from their phone and say, huh, this is interesting, is different than cultivating in them after the class is over and they go about their lives, the kind of curiosity and critical skills to go and find those conversations again. That's what I'm saying. I don't think that's going to be everyone. I think, yes, we can make philosophy interesting to everyone. We can get them into the conversation, at least to see the merits of it. But I don't know that, in the same way that Ammon was saying, I'm not really sure we can teach critique. I'm not sure that we can teach curiosity. We got a really good audio clip that I think now would be a nice time to listen to from our friend Wusatala Nizamani, who actually has a great podcast. And I think it goes right to the heart of the problem here, because we are being asked to teach a certain skill set. And the secondary thing is, oh, and teach passion and questioning and interest in critique and ideas, but just make sure that they know how to write papers and how to form an argument and how to get a good grade. And his comments go right to exactly the problem that we're talking about right now. So let's give a listen to Wusat. Hello, Shannon. Thank you for this great opportunity to speak on the topic of teaching. Uh, uh, main problem with teaching is that our whole system is graded from kindergarten to middle school to high school to the university level. Whenever we are in a middle school you have to get a good grades to get into high school, then a good grade in high school to get in university and good grades in university to get a good job. So what happens really is, I don't know if it happens in the United States or not, but it happens in Pakistan that whenever a teacher teaches a certain topic, students ask, is this topic going to be a part of exam? So what happens truly is rather than learning a topic Rather than sake of learning, we just learn for the sake of passing the exam. So we just cover the topic rather than discover the topic. We lose the essence to inquire and create. We just become cogs in the machine and becomes a robot to pass the exam. So I think we need to change our education system. Certainly, then I think teaching will become more creative and more fun for everyone. I really love that answer. Otherwise, I think that's Ali Bristle at the robot point. <laughs> Throw in a robot shade on my podcast. I don't know. Wusat's comment on, on grading was music to my ears. And I loved his thing claiming that when we worry so much about what we're covering, it's hard to discover. Lee, when I was hearing you talk a second ago about these might be skills that they have after the fact, I was starting to think about how we evaluate, right? Back to our episode on metrics and ratings, where, I, as you guys know, I was critical of grades. I feel like from talking to my students now and the students who I've kept up with over the years, the things that they've gotten the most out of my class are the conversations. And I know that in the moment, but then every time it comes time to write an exam or give a paper, I just try to think like, how am I going to translate that into this sort of grading metric? And I'll be honest, I, I always do it poorly and I'm covering the wrong stuff because it's, it, then you cover the stuff that's easy to grade. And it, it just breaks my heart. I'm still thinking about what exactly it is that we're doing and this sort of question of are we teaching skills, are we teaching information, or are we teaching certain habits and, and ways of being? And I don't think there's anything wrong with teaching all of those 
things, it's fine if you have to teach some information that then you want to be able to see explained clearly in a paper. As long as that's not the the end goal of everything, I think that it's perfectly fine to see it as a multi-pronged activity that we're engaged in when we're teaching. Hooks also says that there's a difference between education as a practice of freedom an education that merely strives to reinforce domination. And so she says engage pedagogy is a commitment to education as the practice of freedom. But she also says that the rewards of engaged pedagogy may not happen in the classroom. And that it, it may take a while for the trees to bear fruit. And oftentimes we're not even around to see it. So I think that that might be, in some sense, is a little bit of the tragedy of being a teacher, that you're planting these seeds and you're like, boy, I sure hope that they're going to grow into flowers. And more often than not, you don't ever really know. And sometimes you're just lucky enough to have somebody come back and say, yeah, actually, that did work. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that, because I think one of the things I hate most about teaching is that after five months with these young people, I have to say you passed or you failed. And frequently I will run into students out in the world, IRL, in Meetspace, who will come up to me and say, oh, Dr. J, I'm so-and-so. I had you 10 years ago and I remember this or I thought of this or whatever. And I frequently will say to them, oh, now you passed, right? Yeah. Like now, now you made an A. Because that grade that we give at the end does not have, I think, any direct correlation to what I think I'm doing when I'm teaching, other than in the purely bureaucratic sense. Let me ask you a different question, which is still playing on what it is that we're doing as teachers and what it means to be a teacher. Both of you, do you feel like you are a real expert in what you teach or how you teach? I do think that I am a real expert in both. But I'm not sure what that expertise amounts to. Ammon, so, you're real. You're Debbie Downer. What's going on? <laughs> Am I? <laughs> yeah. You sound. You sound so sad about all of this. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not sure it's sad or not. But okay. So expertise and subject matter. Sure. Like we have PhDs. We we earn those PhDs. There are things about which all of us are world experts in. Those aren't the things I usually teach in. Although sometimes I do. You know, I'm lucky enough that I get to teach master's students, which means that I do get to teach very specific areas. But like when I'm teaching ethics, which is about half my teaching load, but probably 80% of my students will take me in because it's my intro class. I'm still an expert. We are always just scratching the surface. And so I think, again, a feature of all the three of us is that we are all redesigning our syllabi a lot, which not everybody does, which means that I'm teaching things I haven't taught before. So when I say that I don't know how far my expertise goes, like I know I'm an expert learner and I know that I know a lot about the general field. But I find that I'm the best teacher when I'm teaching stuff that I haven't taught a gazillion times. In terms of teaching, like I, and again, I think all three of us are this way. Like I spent a lot of time reading pedagogy stuff. I've tried all those like skills that are out there. And honestly, a lot of them, I don't think are any better than just conversations. So I think that being thoughtful about teaching and skilled at it matters. But the kind of expertise that somebody employs when they call themselves an expert pedagogue I am very skeptical of how that translates into the classroom. Yeah. What about you, Lee? I think that I am an expert in teaching. I don't think that I'm an expert in all of the areas that I teach. My first job was at Rhodes College, which had a sequence of courses that they called the search for values. It was a three-semester sequence. That was basically 
a great book scores. And it was on that St. John's model of your professor is not an expert in every single thing that we're going to be doing in this course, obviously, which is why faculty from across many disciplines taught this. But what your professor is an expert in is teaching and learning. So I do think that frequently I teach things that I would not call myself an expert in because it's just necessary. I'm in a small department. I have to teach things outside of my area of expertise all the time. But I do think that I am an expert in teaching. And I think that if you gave me a book to read for a class that I'm going to teach next week, that I'm going to be more of an expert in it than any of the students. Because exactly as Ammon said, I I am an expert reader. I think that the skills that it takes to do what needs to be done in a classroom, I do have. To be honest, Lee, I think that one thing that happens, and this gets back to that tripod that I mentioned earlier, the academy is so focused on expertise in a very narrow, specialized, what are you the world expert in way. And one of the things that I've learned from teaching and from doing public philosophy more is that a lot of times expertise has much more to do with scaffolding and structuring. I hate to disagree with your characterization of yourself, but I do think you're an expert in the things that you teach because you've widely read in the history of ideas and in philosophy so that when you get a new piece of information, when you read a new book, you're in a position to process and scaffold that in a way that your students aren't, right? Which is what you're saying, but to me, that is expertise. So I'm going to agree and disagree with you. I agree with both of you that there is a way of modeling, reading, and figuring out arguments and having educated conversations. And in that, I think we are all experts. But I also think teaching to transgress is all about teaching something that you don't know, where you're not the expert, where you go in and you say, you know what, I'm not the master of the house. I'm not the person in command. I'm not the captain of the ship. It's just a text that is new for all of us. Let's work together to figure it out. I actually had the hardest time doing this. It's really only been, I'd say, the last maybe eight years that I've really started changing my syllabi and redoing things and bringing in new materials. And it's terrifying every time. And the whole like going in and being like, hey, y'all, this is the first time I've read this. What do you think? Or what do we do with it? That was really hard for me to do because I felt really insecure about just walking in and being like, I have no idea what's going on here. But over the years, I've started to see the value of it. And I don't know if that's just age and experience, but now I feel like that's a really good exercise to model to the students that, hey, everyone's got to learn. Learning's a lifelong thing and it never stops. Hey listeners, we really do love to hear from you. So feel free to send us an audio clip with a comment or a question to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. Also check out the interactive page on our website, hotelbarpodcast.com, where we often post questions or solicit comments about future topic episodes. You may hear yourself on a future episode. I do want to just say one quick thing about the way that you described the relationship between expertise and authoritarian mastery. I don't think that that's the only avenue for 
expressing expertise. I yeah. think that a lot of people do that. They become experts in a subject area and then only interact with everyone else as if they're the masters of that area. But I want to give a shout out to one of my professors when I was in graduate school, Jack Caputo, who is an expert in many things. But I was always so impressed with the way in the classroom that he used his expertise, his role as an expert, not in a kind of authoritative, I'm the master, here, come sit at my feet sort of way, but as a way of, as an expert, being able to open up and engage questions that non-experts may not even know how to ask. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I think that you're right, Caputo did a great job with that. I think that this distinction between authority and expertise is really, really crucial. Things vary for different people. I do not do well with an authoritarian classroom space. I hated and I chafed at authoritarian classroom spaces when I was a student. And so my tendency is to not try to recreate those. That said, and so many dynamics enter into the classroom space. So I am generally given more deference than I like to get in the classroom for a lot of reasons. And as I get older, that gets more and more true, which allows me to not care about authoritative space. But generally speaking, I think that a big challenge is to employ one's expertise without becoming coercive. And again, Socrates, depending on our interpretation of Socrates, Socrates may have been the very best or the very worst at that. <laughs> That's why he's so fascinating. I'm never going to be able to know. So wait, Ammon, I just want to get clarification. Did you say that the more that you have been teaching, the more deference students show to you? Yes. But I, but again, as a white man, that's always going to be the case. And as a middle-aged white man, getting less middle every year, I'm aware that my students are, are conditioned to be deferential to people like me in the classroom. And that's a reality that I have to be careful with. This actually plays perfectly with another submission that we got from Charles Peterson. And it has everything to do with this sort of what does it mean to be an expert and how is that either accepted or challenged in the classroom? So I'm going to play that really quickly. Thanks for the opportunity. Longtime listener, first time caller. But I wanted to share a story that was triggered for me as I was reading a comment on Twitter related to the most recent fairly scandalous Pete Singer interview in The New Yorker about why he didn't read African thinkers. And it reminded me of how difficult it can be to teach Africana philosophy at majority white institutions. So a few years ago, I was in a class and I think I was running through some particular topic related to the reading. And because of the nature of the reading, I had fallen into some of the, the jargon, some of the lexicon of the reading and had gone on a bit of a rant explaining myself. And as I finished, a student who had been pretty much a enjoyable smart ass over the course of the semester raised his hand and as I finished said, wow, that all sounds really, really smart. And I just, without thinking, said, well, I don't have to sound smart, I am smart, I have a PhD in philosophy. And it made me think about how there are always moments where one has to justify one's presence in front of these students or justify the topics that one teaches or justify just being a professor of color in front of students who aren't of color. So I thought that was an interesting experiential moment I had in terms of my time as a teacher. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that from Charles. And I want to say in a different register that this has also been my experience as a woman professor. I never let my students call me by my first name. And I never have. And after they graduate, I tell them that they can call me by my first name, but they usually don't because even my grown adult friends call me Dr. J. So it's not, (laughs) I mean, it's whatever. But I do think that is something that I have never budged on. And for exactly the reason that I don't get the deference that Ammon gets in a classroom. And I've had real, real uncomfortable moments where not so enjoyable smart asses in the classroom mouth off and talk to me like some dumb girl. And it is very hard for me not to say exactly what Charles said. I am smart. I have a PhD. Get back in your place because I don't want to be a master. I don't want that authority and expertise to turn into being coercive and oppressive. However, the only reason that they're able to speak like that is, of course, because of large social structures of sexism. And it is a really delicate balance in the classroom, I think, when you are from one of the demographic groups that do not get that deference. You want to remain open. You want to remain inviting. You want to remain supportive. But you don't want to be a doormat. 100% agree. I think you just said that so well. I have very similar experiences and I've always wondered what would it have been like if I would have done what you did and insist that people call me Dr. Musset. Nobody calls me Dr. Musset or Professor Musset. Some do, but they almost all call me Shannon. And it's easier now because I have my age. But when I was younger, I remember feeling really uncomfortable about it. And I would tell them, you can call me Shannon because I wanted to be cool. But it also had this effect of just making it weird. Not all the time, but some of the times. And so now I'm in this position where I feel like I'm of a certain age and experience where I don't have to prove a lot of the things I had to prove when I was younger. But since I do a lot with age studies... I'm like charting to see when is it going to go the other direction because we're eventually going to get old enough that they're going to just start seeing us as old people and treating us as if we're not as sharp as we think we are or whatever. And so it's, it's almost like a momentary place that I'm occupying where it's not as difficult as it once was, but I can see on the horizon that it's going to happen again. I'm, I'm going to have to think a lot more about that. I will say for the reasons that you guys have mentioned, Although I used to never insist on being called doctor, I now do precisely because I've become aware of the ways in which white men getting away with being Ammon in the classroom is problematic. And so I actually have instituted, not just with being called doctor, but in other ways, more hierarchy that I would ideally like to do for that reason. Another thing that I really appreciated in Charles's response was his discussion, and this goes back to the canon, of trying to introduce certain kinds of material. And again, especially, for example, as a professor of color, two largely white students. When we talked about the canon, I wish I talked more about this because this is something that I've struggled a lot with as a teacher. I used to teach entirely white men. Mm-hmm. and We all probably did. Yeah. And understanding that my own position as a white man, even if I didn't identify strongly with these very canonical ways of doing things, excluded the idea that certain kinds of questions could be asked has been very important in shaping my teaching. I'd say over the last 10 years only is when I've really figured this out, but I'm still learning about. So I, I teach graduate students and we've been trying for forever. And I will say our deans have been very supportive of this, but we've been trying for forever to hire scholars who specialize in Africana philosophy, in non-Western philosophy, and they will not give us these positions. 
which drives me crazy. This has meant that because we've wanted to work with graduate students, this is something that I'm proud of, is we generally think of mentoring graduate students as teaching them to be like us, especially graduate students, right? The subject formation like us. And I've worked really hard to work with students who have projects that don't fit my interests, but where I can help them in various ways as an expert. So I just directed a thesis on Latin American philosophy, on Sor Juana, who I learned a ton about. And in some ways I felt inadequate to do that because I'm not an expert in Mexican philosophy. I'm not an expert in this 17th century nun. And part of me said, maybe I should make this person do a more traditional topic. But since my institution won't hire people who will do this, I see it as a very strong obligation that I have to develop enough expertise and, and to figure out how to reach out to my colleagues in other places in order to do this. But it's really hard work because we live in such a fundamentally unjust society. And our institutions work harder and harder to make them more unjust. And it shouldn't be that hard. And somebody who is an expert should be directing that thesis and not me. Just on that point about introducing different authors into a class and the way that students' responses to different authors often mimics their responses to different professors. One of the things that I've done, and I'm pretty sure Shannon does this too, I don't know about you, Ammon, but one of the things that I've always done in my classes is that I've always taken the position of the figure that I'm teaching. Yeah. So that has made it a lot easier, in my view, for students to hear philosophers of color, women philosophers, philosophers of disability, queer philosophers, in this exact same register that they hear Kant and Aristotle and Hegel, because it's still being presented in my pedagogical mode as if this is the right argument or this is the true thing. If we were going to give tips on this podcast for up-and-coming teachers, I highly recommend doing this. Yeah, that was one of the things we were talking about at the end of the Who Done It episode. Do we take on the persona or the position of the philosophers that we teach? And I absolutely agree with you. I think it is such a good strategy. First of all, because it does encourage that kind of teaching as the practice of freedom, because you're not telling the students which one is right. This is the right one. This is the wrong one. You're giving different perspectives. You're giving different theories and different authors. And it's you got to do the work because I'm convinced by all of them. I yeah. love all of them. I occupy all, all of their minds. And so in that sense, I think that it's a really excellent way to, to teach these different texts. And it does, you're right, allow you to take the position that may not be the position that is your particular epistemic framework. Now we're going to have some fun because... <laughs> We're going to talk about our successes and failures. And I want to start with our failures. I want to see, do you have anything that you consistently miss the mark on or just an awesome story of where you totally miffed it? What about you, Lee? This is so easy for me to answer. I, I don't know if this is true for you, but I have one class. It, it was probably more than 10 years ago now that still to this day sticks in my craw <laughs> as a terrible class. And it was a senior seminar. Here's one thing that is really important to note is that every class, of course, is different. Even when you're teaching the same class, like the makeup of the students, the vibe of mm -hmm. their interaction, the time of day, and the room that you're in, all those things make a really big difference. And there were a number of just bad factors playing into this particular senior seminar. It was a small class. The dominant personalities were also the worst students in the sense like <laughs> they were lazy, they didn't do the work. And so 
as always happens in a class, the kind of dominant personalities in the class tend to set the vibe of the class. And the thing was, is that by the time I realized this, because this was still quite early in my teaching career, by the time I realized that this ship was sinking, there was just nothing I could do that didn't come across as drill sergeant-y. So, right. so I was not only unhappy with the class, I was unhappy with myself. I was unhappy with the way that I was managing the problem. And it just never turned around. I'll be honest with you. It never turned around. It did finish. A couple people failed. But I just didn't know what to do. It was a really good failure because I think up until that point, I was convinced that I could do no wrong in the classroom or at least like any wrongs that I did in the classroom were just temporary, but that I couldn't actually tank a class. I've tanked my first and only class. And I did learn that I need to pay attention to all of these other things. I need to set the temperature of the class by the second week and I need to keep it there. I can't let the class set the vibe, set the mood, set the tone. And that does sound very drill sergeanty, but I don't mean it in that way. I mean it like I need to make sure they're in good soil and that they're getting sun and they're getting water. You got to know the souls, right? Yeah, it was, as the kids say, an epic fail. I'm glad you brought up the rooms. Because it is amazing. We have a big automotive wing. And sometimes you get stuck in one of these rooms and it smells like gas and oil. And there's like (laughs) auto parts all over the place. And it's actually nauseating to be there. Or like a weird shaped class where you're walking just in a small little space back (laughs) and forth. And that really impacts your ability to teach a class. I taught in a class, again, at Rhodes, which is located just across the street from the Memphis Zoo. And if you teach on the right side of campus at a certain time in the afternoon when they feed the monkeys, like it's just like <laughs> the monkeys are going wild outside. And I remember very clearly I was teaching a class on Aristotle one day and I could see in their eyes people were checking out, their attention was going. And the student in the back raises his hand and I was like, yeah. And he says, do you hear monkeys? <laughs> I, was just like, I was like, how do you recover? your lecture after that. I was like, yes, I do hear monkeys and I will see you on Wednesday. Shannon, (laughs) your description of the classroom spaces there, I want to say you should call OSHA, but then I remember you live in Utah and I don't... Right. They're going to be like, it's a right to teach. teach, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a right to teach state. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably required to teach near airport airplane parts and stuff. Yeah, exactly. We're also required to be sure that there's like massive construction happening right outside your window. Oh, that's the absolute... One semester I had a class where the entire semester was the construction semester. Leaf blowers is the other other enemy of a good lecture. But please tell me I'm not the only one that's failed. Do y'all have failures? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I remember, I will say the class that was the biggest failure for me, and I was so proud of how I designed this class. I was teaching crime and punishment. Not the book, that was the class topic. And I taught to people who had taught this class. This was my first time teaching it. And at this institution, I taught philosophy of law classes elsewhere. And they were like, you're just going to have to be ready for the fact that a lot of your students, they're criminal justice majors, and this is not a diss on criminal justice majors, but there are students in the class for whom the question is, how hard am I allowed to hit before I get in trouble, right? <laughs> and Yikes. Yeah. I wish that I wasn't joking. But you no know, disrespect. Like, no, no dis- <laughs> But I'm like, seriously, given the conversation, this was before, I taught this, I think, like 2012. So this was before Black Lives Matter had really, I think, pushed. Obviously, you've been talking about police brutality for a long time. And I do not want to make light of it by any means. But my point is that my values and the values of some of the students in this class were coming from very different places. So I had this really creative and smart idea where what I was going to do, I wasn't going to do crime and punishment. I was going to do punishment and crime where the first half of the class, 
I, by the way, I still think this is a brilliant idea. This is not where the failure comes in. I turned into the Stanford experiment. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> not quite. No, so the first part of the class, we we're going to do what's the social value of punishment? So we're going to go through, okay, why, do, why does punishment work for society? Getting to the point where basically they realize that punishment, for better or worse, is a major way to structure societies. So that then I'm like, but hold on a second. And I even used Rawls, which I thought was brilliant. He was just the worst liberal for this really funny moment where Rawls is this piece where it's like, yeah, util- punishment is all these great utilitarian values. The only problem is they got to deserve it. So to therefore to get my students to think to themselves, oh shit, now we got to talk about crime. Hopefully by the end of the semester, getting them to the point where they realize, oh my God, discourse about criminality is manufactured so that we can punish. And I thought I was very clever. Sounds and because clever. the front 10 students were either philosophy majors or in our law and social thought majors, which tends to be this very lefty program we have here, and they were egging me on, I was like, we are succeeding. Oh, no. And they were messing with They loved it. Those 10 students were totally on board with my project. It was the 25 students behind them <laughs> who were like writing Fox News. <laughs> Did I insert too much of an authoritative voice in that class? I don't know. But that was definitely the worst class. It does speak to those classes that you have that are a mix of philosophy majors or philosophy major adjacent and just people who are there for something other than what you're there to sell. And so I definitely think that can really go south quickly. But And just not to get myself off the hook here, because I do think that had I pitched it differently, I could have gotten them to think I think that I thought I was going to get them to like radically question their viewpoint. And if I had been more honest with myself and with them, I could have at least gotten them to think more seriously rather than I think at a certain point they just regarded me as the enemy. And that's on me too. You know what I mean? That's on me too. I have these these kinds of experiences too. Like my favorite failure is my first semester teaching at Utah Valley University, which was just a year of failures. I must have stepped on 18,000 landmines as I tried to navigate teaching in Orem, Utah, coming from Philadelphia. I remember I had this one student, he was such a difficult student and I could not find a way to get him to play nice with the others. And at the end, I was reading his final paper and it was on Aristotle. And it was just like Aristotle was involved in the shipping industry and was involved in the telegraph services and was, and I was like, what is going on with this student? Oh my God, he's talking about Aristotle Onassis. So I was like, <laughs> and I like went up to him and I was like, how have I failed you? That you didn't know I was talking about the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle and not Aristotle Onassis. How did I just fail to convey what was happening here? And I have lots of those kinds of stories. I have one more failure I want to share really quickly because I promised the people who keep hanging this over my head that I would share this. <laughs> okay. But but I also taught a class. This is, again, many years ago. I was still a pretty young teacher. It was a 19th century class. We were doing Hegel's phenomenology, which, by the way, is extremely hard to teach. We were in the fifth week of it. It was a night seminar, so it was a three-hour class. We were an hour and a half into the class. Things had gotten really difficult, and the conversation had gotten a little heated in the classroom. And a lot of people were talking at the same time, and I was trying to get everybody on this point that I felt like everyone was missing. And at one point, so Ben Curtis, who is now Dr. Ben Curtis, he's since uh, gone on to get his PhD in philosophy. Ben Curtis and another one of the students, Colin Fleck, were going back and forth about an idea. And I thought that this 
position that Ben was stating, which was the exact opposite of what I was trying to get people to say. I thought that he was restating it. But in fact, what he was doing was saying, I wasn't saying that I think X, (laughs) Y, Z, right? And I just interrupted him and I was like, Ben, people are wrong every day. Let's move on. (laughs) So to this day, anytime I see any of those kids who, of course, now they're 30, right, out in the world, they always come up to me. They're like, the one thing I learned from you is that people are wrong every day. You know, that's a pretty good lesson to take away with you. That's a valuable lesson. That sounds like a success. Have you ever just been teaching something and just there's nothing left for you to say? I remember one time I had to teach modern philosophy at UVU and I was like I'm going to teach Newton's optics that seems to be a really important thing in, in the modern era and oh my god I don't know if you've read this thing but I was like 15 minutes into the class and I just said that's all I have class dismissed <laughs> enjoy the buffet I'll be here I all week like, I had nowhere to go I was like I really don't know what I'm talking about and scene Another thing that happens frequently, and this is one of the most frustrating fails that happens, because I actually do think that I'm very good at restating a point or coming up with an example to illustrate a point. And one one thing that frustrates me a lot is when I say something, and I think I say it very clearly, and a student asks a question, and then I restate it in an also very clear way. And then they ask a question again, and then I give an example, which also clarifies the point that I'm trying to make. And they have that face where it's, I just don't get it. And I'm like, how do you not get it? <laughs> like, I have, I have nothing else. That's that's my right. whole tool. That's tool it. Kit. Like, I, all you, gone. yep, that's right. Everything <laughs> is out. It's now just empty inside. Yeah. Got nothing like, people, left to People give are you. wrong every day. Let's move on. <laughs> Hey everyone, we love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the HBS hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness, Ammon is at Ideasman PhD, and Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now I want to talk about some of our successes. And we got one last audio clip from Mariev Moran, who submitted something which I think is a lovely way to see that what is a success from one perspective is a failure from another and vice versa. So let me go ahead and get that queued up. One of my biggest success stories as a teacher first felt a little bit like a failure. So I had this student, third year philosophy major. He's smart, he's skeen. He's taking my existentialism course and he's doing very well. Now at the end of the semester, he bumps into me in the hallway and he stops me. He's thanking me for the course and telling me that it changed his life. Now this is something that existentialism students often say and that's what's great about teaching that course. And then he says, I'm quitting. I'm leaving the university. I'm going to go make metal music. That's my passion. That's what I want to do with my life. And your course gave me the guts to make that move. Now I'm in shock. I don't know what to say. Of course, what I want is for my students to dedicate their life to philosophical thinking, because that's the greatest thing. But of course, in hindsight, thinking about it, of all of my students, he's the one who really got such lessons about freedom. And that's a success, even though it is really not the one that I was going for. That's teaching to transgress. I love, love, love that. 
Isn't that the best story? I just love that. And first of all, it's so true. That's like existentialism. If you can just stand up and walk right out of this classroom, it's totally your choice to do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> no, don't like do really, it. you don't. You want to stay here, don't you? Don't really want to make that choice. So I love that, and I think that goes back to that earlier uh, idea that we were talking about that you often don't see the fruits of what it is that you do. And actually in line with teaching existentialism, just last year maybe, I had a student come in to my office and she was like, hi, it's so good to see you. I really loved your class. And I I just did not, I didn't recognize this student. I did not know who this was. And she's like, you don't recognize me, do you? And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't. She's like, oh, that's because I've transitioned. And so I looked different when I was taking your class. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can start to put it together. But what she said and what I really loved was she didn't say, it's you who taught me that it was possible to change my life. She said, it was the texts that we read that opened up my eyes to this possibility that I could change and I could not continue on the path that I was going on. And it it was the texts And it was the class reading these things together that brought me to this. And I was like, yeah, that's what we're doing when it goes well. We're giving them the tools to be able to do this, to create their lives. Yeah, that's really well said. That's where the Socrates point really comes through. We're not giving it to them. We're just helping them see that they're there. But I want to hear about your successes. Ammon, give me a good success story. I know you must have so many of them. There's two things. One is this thing that's hard to quantify. And I have to thank technology for this, right? Like, thanks to social media, I've kept in contact with a lot of my students. And it's a fraction of my students, right? It's 2 or 3% of my students. But by this point, again, so when I started teaching, I was young when I started teaching. I started grad school when I was 20. I I was teaching my own classes. By the time I was teaching my own classes, I was the same age probably as the seniors in the classroom. And so so, so some of my students are not that much younger than me. And then that's not even leaving aside non-traditional students. And I've kept, kept in touch with them, some of them for now 20 years. And some of them have become philosophers themselves. And I feel really grateful to have been and then when I'll say something, sometimes I'll make a comment online and people say, I remember you said this thing in our class. Yeah. And that's funny. It's, that's anecdotal because it's a sort of a self-selecting group. It's the group that liked what we were doing and was into the conversation. Still a success. But it's still a success. And, it, and that's when I feel like I know that there are people whose lives I have helped to shape. Yeah. And that's a beautiful realization. In terms of more concrete successes, I think where I'm best as a teacher is in, in, in syllabus design. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've I've had a lot of fun. My ethics class nowadays, I've taught two iterations of it most recently that I've been really happy with, where I, I've used mixtures of like half of them do this like ask an ethics class project where we just like crowdsource advice. And sometimes they don't take it seriously and sometimes they take it really seriously. And we have really great conversations about things that these are problems that they've picked. I also use TV a lot. So I used to do it with The Wire and now I'm doing it with the show years and years that Lee and I both really like. This semester, which has been a shit semester oh, in so God. many ways, we have to do this thing here where I'm teaching in person to a mostly empty classroom, and and most of the students are at home watching it at home, but, but some of them are in the classroom, so it's very weird. And there's two or three students who have come pretty much every time, and they've said it's the, it's the and now again it's mostly just they can get out, but they're like it's the thing I can do is get out of bed and come talk about this TV show with you. But the thing that I'm really proud of is that I don't know, I can't say I don't make them have their cameras on. That's very controversial in teaching world, whether or not you have to have your Zoom cameras on. I don't make them. 
but I know every day that at least four or five of them are typing along and sometimes turning on their mics to chat and the students are in the classroom are participating and it's been a good participation year under shitty, shitty circumstances and I'm really proud of that. Hey, would you be willing to share some of your syllabi or these kinds of assignments? In yeah, our... I'll share. I'll share this. I'll share this years and years yeah, syllabus. I mean, that'd be a great my thing. syllabi are very weird and idiosyncratic. I don't know that anyone else would recognize it as a contemporary moral problems class, which is but what that's it is. Great. So we'll put it but in I our swear episode to God it notes is. because I want to see yeah, it. Yeah, I'd be happy yeah. to. I'll put this one and the wire one, the last one that I did. My big thing in contemporary moral problems, and this is where I think of it as a success or not. Normally, this is a class where it's like, okay, we're going to do abortion and euthanasia and it's pros and cons, which is totally fine. I'm I'm not dissing that as a teaching approach. What I realized at a certain point, and it came from talking with them about sexual ethics, the things that they got worked up about, my biggest conviction was that they were worked up about the wrong things. And so I really think about my contemporary moral problems class as, and it is an advocacy class for me. And I don't think I'm pushing a left or a right agenda or any agenda at all. Exactly. But I'm really trying to convince them that the things that they first think are the ethical problems are not the real ethical problems. And that's what my contemporary moral problems class is when it comes right down to it. That's great. What about you, Lee? Yeah, I've got some things that I think are successes. And I'll also post links to these assignments in the notes to this episode. But I do consider myself a pretty innovative teacher. I very rarely keep a syllabus the same. I teach basically the same classes every single year. But I've changed my syllabi probably every couple of years But I think my biggest successes have been several years ago, I did a a final project in my philosophy of technology class. It's actually called Technology and Human Values. That's what the project was called. It basically asked students to come up with a merely possible technological solution to a real-world value-laden problem, so a social, political, or moral problem. So it had to be a merely possible technological solution, so no time machines, no mind-reading devices, nothing like that. But some of the things that they came up with were absolutely amazing, and I've been doing this project for almost 10 years now, and legitimately I have seen some of the ideas that I saw students eight or nine years ago do for this project come out as actual apps or um, technology. So that's been really super fascinating. In the before times, before COVID, about four years ago, I introduced semi-regular symposia into my classes. So basically I teach all of my courses in historical order and they're broken up into chunks. So there's a unit on Plato and Aristotle. There's a unit on Kant and Mill, et cetera. But when we would get to one of the end of those units, we would have an in-class symposium where students come into the class and they literally draw a name out of a hat and they have to participate in class that day as Plato or Aristotle and they have to talk to each other. And the great advantage of this for me has been that, as we all know, you don't really know if you understand something until you can explain it to someone else. But also because in the course of these conversations, they're in the classroom having to have a conversation as Plato or as Aristotle, but I'm asking them questions about the world today, which really makes them breathe life into these thinkers and really try to take on more subtle and nuanced understandings of what they've read and what they've learned. So that's been a big success. And then I'd finally want to say that my big success during COVID was that in the first COVID semester, which was spring of 2020, and then I repeated it in the fall of 2020, I had my students do a short video 
which they had to turn in at the end of the semester, where they had to have a conversation with their pre-COVID self, Mm. a two-minute conversation. So they had to play both sides. They had to be both themselves in the present day and themselves before COVID. And they also had to incorporate material from our class, et cetera. But those were really, really good. And I'm definitely going forward going to try to keep those kinds of reflect on who you were before you were in this class assignment. So that would I'll post- really dark if I assigned that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll post all of these. I mean, for myself. Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I actually, I love that. I, de- I changed my final exams because of COVID. I used to just give comprehensive written final exams. And now I'm like, just turn in a creative project. It can be anything. And they're so much more fun to grade than, <laughs> yeah. than final exams. Honestly, I'm definitely not as innovative at developing syllabi as Ammon. And I'm definitely not as creative at the the development of these kinds of assignments like Leah's. I don't know. When I really think about my success, I think about the fact that I found myself in a school that I was not expecting to go to, an open admissions, large state school in the most conservative town and the most conservative state in the union or Utah, the state school that is the school that is adjacent to Brigham Young University, BYU. It's a regional university. We largely serve students in the area. And I was not prepared for it. I was not expecting it. But I feel like I'm really well suited to it. I have very conservative, often very religious students in in my classes, especially my generals. And I feel like I'm really good at handling that because I know there's a lot of people who are maybe more politically or socially minded like I am who find it really frustrating to teach these students because it's difficult. And dealing with the kinds of comments and viewpoints that I might viscerally disagree with But I feel like I'm really good at working with it and like making the whole class a place where students don't feel shut down. They feel like they can still voice these opinions, but that they can learn a better way of voicing them and maybe even be open to perspectives and ideas. And they can often get more aggressive with your opinions wrong. And I feel like I'm pretty good at at navigating that space. I think you absolutely are. And Ammon, you and I would be remiss if we did not bring up Shannon's love of snowflakes while we're talking about, while we're talking about. So Ammon and I frequently make fun of Shannon because Shannon treats every student like a snowflake. I do. An absolutely unique and valuable individual. (laughs) And she loves that. And that is... And she, she, I, in my she deeply heart. believes it. Yeah, yeah. And that is not my approach to students. But I do think that Shannon is very good at it. And I can see it in the interactions between you and your students. That has a real and meaningful connection. And so I have grown to appreciate your snowflake Ophelia. <laughs> y'all that was a fantastic conversation but i think that we just heard last call from the bar again one last white claw for the (laughs) the oh no that's okay (laughs) uh, that'll be one bitcoin it's a a 67 cent drink all right so lee what are we going to be talking about next session Next time, we are going to be talking about shame. It seems like a really appropriate time, culturally speaking, to be talking about shame. So we want to talk about what shame is. Is it effective? Can you shame someone into really changing? 
but also how shame is being used culturally right now, which means that, yes, we will be using the words cancel culture <gasps> in rapid succession, probably because shame is very operative in the way that cancel culture gets described. But also we want to talk about what's the difference between shaming someone and canceling them. Are those actually equivalent? But yeah. And I'm going to ask my co-host to, of course, give us detailed accounts of their most shameful moments. Oh, I'm eager to. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> All right. I'll see y'all next time. Bye, guys. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.